It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week we're talking about class with researcher Danny Dawling, the Lib Dems with our politics team, and the recent elections in Iceland with our contributing editor Laurie Penny. I'm joined by our political editor Raphael Fair and the editor of The Staggers, Georgia Eaton, to talk about the politics and the big issues of the week. First up, the Lib Dems. Raph, where are they? Uh, they are not doing terribly well in the opinion polls, as everyone can see. Um, but they are their mood is is more buoyant than I think a lot of people think it ought to be. Um, and I've, as I've written my column about that this week, I'll give that a quick plug. Um, but the reason is the sort of the, the thesis that I was trying to, to 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 follow is that I mean everyone's been talking about Nigel Farage and UKIP, this great insurgency. It's all terribly exciting, sort of new actor on the stage, it seems. Um, but actually. Um, the, the, the sort of the force that's really changed the way politics operates, the things that when we kind of look back on the history of this parliament, we'll go, wow, that was actually something quite substantial happened in the way everyone had to behave in politics, will be Coalition and Nick Clegg. And, and one of the reasons for that, one of the sort of remarkable things is that he's still there and they're still going. And they got, um, they got creamed in the local election results recently. I mean, they lost sort of 120, 124 councillors. They came seventh in South Shields by-election with sort of 2% of the vote, um, which is not a good result by anyone's book. And yet when you speak to the Lib Dems, or you certainly speak to Lib Dems around Nick Clegg, what they will say is, look, we're never going to get um, a Labour stronghold like South Shields. Um, we are not going to be receptive of protest vote anymore. But actually in places where we have a sitting MP, where the machine is still working, People who think, who are used to seeing combat in terms of blue, yellow, stop the Tories, they're still coming out for us, they're still coming out for the Lib Dems. And what that means is when the rest, when the sort of the Labour Tory battle feels like the sort of the Western Front, sort of circa 1916, and they're just stuck in these muddy trenches, you know, advancing a bit, retreating a bit, it's just all sort of mud and corpses. Um, actually, the opportunity for the Lib Dems, with a degree of strategic clarity that I think they deserve some credit for, to just squat in the middle and have another hung parliament, which everyone I speak to seems to think is the likeliest outcome of the next general election, and then be possibly in another coalition and have a second term in government. And, you know, the Tories aren't expecting that necessarily, and Labour getting very pessimistic about their chances of a majority. So, actually, Clegg's survival bigger than Farage's arrival. 
a good rhyme. Um, so for the next next two years, what do they look like for the Lib Dems? Are they just going to be there just to block things like the Snoopers chart, for example? Or are there any shreds of yellow policy that is, you know, that I didn't think we heard anything in the Queen's speech, did we? Well, the, the sense you're, I'm getting uh, is that the next two years are basically election campaign. And that is, it, seemed, it actually seems to be the Conservatives who are driving that. They, they recognise that they, you know, they, because in terms of... Uh, holding some kind of party unity together, fending off a UKIP threat, what they really want to now do is use Parliament, any opportunity they can, any mechanism they can, sort of advertise the sorts of things they would do if only they didn't have these pesky Lib Dems on their back. And in that context, it makes it quite hard for the Lib Dems to do anything but block. But really, I mean, going back to what I was saying before, if the Lib Dems, if the sort of the market for Lib Dems is people who think, well, you know, fair play to them, they're still there, they're not mad, and actually what we don't want is a Conservative majority government, because actually those guys are a bit mad, especially when they go galloping after UKIP voters, uh, sort of this, sort of keeping the Lib Dems there as a the sort of the leash on the Tory dog, um, is it's, it's a not implausible proposition. I wouldn't overstate this. I mean, God, they, they, they struggle to sustain double digits in the polls. Um, but you're not hearing so much the idea that Nick takes can, can't possibly lead them into the next election. Um, and they have their own manifesto process and they will go into the next election saying, look, there are three or four big things, you know, the um, income tax, threshold rising, um, well, don't challenge me to name any other great Lib Dem achievements because <laughs> then my thesis starts to unravel a bit. Um, but anyway, they will go into the next election saying, look, we did... We, we know, took the edge off the we Tories. We took the edge off the Tories. We delivered the, uh, a, a popular policy, which is a tax cut, and frankly, you know, we're the tonic in that bathtub gin. And George, we had um, a, a diary this week from UKIP leader Nigel Farage. How is, or Farage, as I believe we're supposed to pronounce it now, how, what's your sense of how he's played things after his unexpectedly great result? It's, it's very interesting that Farage, on the one hand, um, is trying to build UKIP up as the fourth party of British politics, so, you know, talking of a seismic shift. On the other hand, he's suggesting that there could be some kind of arrangement with the Conservatives in the future if if David Cameron departs as leader. He said he'd be open to working with Michael Gove, he'd be open to working with Boris Johnson. You've now got, of course, some people on the Tory side, Jacob Rees-Mogg, most Thisby, saying that there should be some kind of coalition with UKIP. Farage, he said, should become Deputy Prime Minister uh, Tory voters would much prefer him to Nick Clegg. Presumably, that's after he's gone to the trouble of actually winning a seat. But I think, look, Farage, um, he um, he will get another. There will be another surge next year when they do the very well in the European right? elections. Um, I I think it's slightly they're slightly raising expectations by suggesting they're certain to win them. They've got a good chance, but there's still a chance Labour could win and UKIP come a very strong second. So the, the, the test with Farage as the leader will be whether he can actually begin to manage the expectations. One of the things that I find most interesting is the mood at the moment, this idea that UKIP are an anti-establishment party. And I, you know, I pointed this out in the Sunday politics, that this is somebody who went to a private school, who was a stockbroker. He's not, you know, he's hardly kind of some hippie who's wandered in completely you know, off beam. Is there a sense, do you think, and I, maybe we can't solve political journalism in the next minute and a half, but that politicians and journalists are having a conversation which normal people are excluded from? I think there's two things going on here. One, I mean, certainly I'll add to that Stuart Wheeler, who's the treasurer of, of UKIP and, and this key financier who went Eaton, Oxford, the city. And, you know, you think, well, it's not that anti-establishment, is it? Um, but there is a feeling, I think, among a lot of politicians and a lot of political journalists that um, because they have this same very similar background, they aren't entitled to speak on behalf of 
working class people, you know, in quotes, ordinary, normal people. Um, and so they sort of desperately want, as it were, a sort of a piece of that anti-establishment action. They want to, to be able to articulate that. But actually, they know they can't do it authentically. And it's, it's, it's always, almost that kind of self-loathing translated into sort of projected onto UKIP. And, and I, I do think it's a dangerous theme to, to, to pursue because actually what UKIP, before they're anti-establishment, what they are is anti-immigrant. I mean, the establishment is not made up of Bulgarian migrants. You know? So let's talk, think about what they actually oppose, what the thing they hate, which is a lot of modern Britain and a lot of foreigners, the thing they like, the past. And then the establishment is a second order issue. And you were looked in the polling this week, George, about what it is that motivates UKIP voters. Mm. And we've actually discovered that they don't really... Europe is not the big thing that A, motivates them to vote and B, is all that big of an issue anyway, right? Absolutely. I mean, for them, the most important issue, as it is for most voters, is the economy and then, then, and then immigration. Um, but I think it is this more this wider sense of UKIP as the plucky upstarts against the establishment. And you're right that Farage makes a very unlikely figurehead for that revolt. One UKIP voter said to me recently, I like UKIP, you know, they, they want to sort out the bankers. I mean, Farage was a banker. I mean, they are the most pro-city party in British politics. But it's because he speaks in this populist pattern that Miliband and Cameron can't match. There is one figure the Tories have who can do some of that, who's Boris Johnson. It'll be very interesting to see how they deploy Boris against Farage and whether Cameron can recruit Boris as an ally in his bid to counter the UKIP threat. And is there a sense in either of you that there's anybody in the Labour Party who can talk to people in that way? Well, I think this is a big problem for Labour because actually Ed Miliband, uh, a part of his sort of self-image and the proposition he offered was, you know, the, the, the ripper up of the rules, you know, breaking the mould, there's sort of seismic shift in British politics. And he sort of calculated that this is where politics was going to go after the financial crisis. And in his sort of computer model, in his sort of spreadsheet, he didn't have right wing populist insurgency on the page. And that means his actual the basic political equation that he's put together in terms of his strategy of what he can represent in British politics is wrong. And I think that's actually intellectually profoundly challenging to what Labour uh, is offering. And actually, you look at the Labour front bench and now it's very hard to see who could who could sort of perform in the way that Farage is able to perform. But there was this theory, we were talking about this last week, that Labour voters would defect to UKIP in the way that they so some people would just never consider doing to the Tories, although we know that already that they're stealing more Tory voters than Labour voters. It certainly looks at the moment that what's happening is Labour are stuck, um, but they've got a, a bunch of Lib Dem refugees and you know uh, anti-Tory voters, and then the, the Tory votes for them because a lot of people are switching. That's a broad underlying point, but I, I do think also... There are a lot of people who you know, were fed up with Labour for quite a long time, so they're in government for a long time, and are also anti-immigration and anti-Europe. And as you know, George was saying, they, you know, what, they, they're not as inoculated against voting UKIP as they are against voting Tory. And George, I've spent a couple of wasted hours of my life trying to find out exactly what the detail of this kind of uh, crackdown on immigration that was in the Queen's speech. What does it, what does it amount to? They're going to make it much harder for, for immigrants to use the NHS. And if they do, they're going to make sure the NHS can claim those payments back. They're going to be conditions on social housing, so residency tests, which a lot of councils already apply. Actually, a lot of what they're doing is, is already in place. Mm -hmm. It's just a case of sending a signal to the right of the party. Look, we're, we're doing something. Um, you know, we're, we're aware that you know, this is something you're concerned about. That, uh, that UKIP are winning support over. 
So, so this is going to say on, on that this is a disastrous strategy because all all history has always shown that what happens is people aren't going to believe it's working, but you're completely reinforcing the impression that it's a terrible problem. So what you're essentially doing is advertising yourselves as the people who would like to do what UKIP say they want to do, but don't have the guts or the capability, which is basically a way of saying go vote UKIP. I well we had this Andrew Ornsey's column at the weekend. You know you can't out UKIP the, the kippers or whatever it was, but no, I I'm, I think we had a blog from Alex Andre that said that this estimated kind of cost of uh, NHS is twenty million yeah. pounds from from foreign non EEA nationals using it. What would be the administration cost of every GP having to check everybody's passport? You know when they came into the surgery, it's kind of. But you're right. It's 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 just dog whistling and not. And expecting actually... GPs to refuse essentially say, "Oh, sorry, before I see you, can I see your passport, please?" I mean, doctors, most doctors I know would feel very uncomfortable doing that. Well, I just don't see how there's any way that an A and E department somebody can walk in with their leg hanging off and they can say. No. They can't walk in if their leg well, is okay. hanging they off. They can hop right? in That's with their leg hanging off. Practical issue there. <laughs> but anyway, on that note, I'll leave you. Thank you very much, George and Red. Sally Dorling is the Professor of Human Geography at Sheffield University, and he's written a piece about social mobility in the magazine this week. And he's here with me now. Um, Danny, in a line, if it's possible to do, what would you say has happened to social mobility in this country? I mean, your piece's uh, prediction or assessment of, of where we are and where we're going to be is, is pretty bleak. Um, it doesn't look good at the moment. Uh, it does look good if you look back a long way, which is what I do in the piece. So I, I go all the way back to the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And in a way, social mobility increased as the, as the gap between us narrowed from the 20s until the 1970s. But since the late 1970s, the gaps between us in terms of income and, and wealth and opportunity have been widening and widening. And at the moment, there is no sign that that widening isn't going to carry on. And it's got back to um, pre-war levels of inequality. Yeah, I mean, well, we'll come back to that, the sort of the pre-war, post-war um, sort of disjuncture, because that's that's very interesting. But one thing that you do really uh, deftly in the piece is framing the story through uh, Margaret Thatcher's family and, and her trajectory through the, the class system, I suppose. And I wonder if you could just sort of give us a brief insight into that. And, and I mean, obviously, the timing it was close after her death. But what gave you that idea? Uh, people always say about Margaret Thatcher, quite often say, how, how she came from supposedly common stock and, and wasn't she not like the party she joined. Uh, but that was partly a story of the, of the times she lived through. Uh, it was easier for somebody from her background to rise uh, than it is now. And also her background wasn't that, that poor. Uh, when she was born, her father was a shop owner. And that puts you above many other people. Uh, by the time she got into her 20s, he owned two shops. The second one was admittedly much of a shack, but it was still two shops, and he became mayor. So she was really in the top 1% in her town of Grantham when she went to university. Um, but her kind of trajectory up the social scale was something that was much more common at that time and became much less common from the point she became prime minister onwards. And it's a kind of modern tale of our times. It's Margaret Thatcher's life and then what she did and her colleagues did when they were in power in effect to make it harder for other people to move around in the way that they had. Yeah, it's the sort of central irony, isn't it? I mean, you, you cite 1979 as being this this sort of turning point year. But but go back to, to the war and, and that post-war moment, I suppose, which did see a real sea change, obviously, in, in the sort of social makeup of Britain. Yeah. Uh, it, it really it really was a big change. Um, so many things all happened at once. You had free secular education brought in with the 1944 Act. 
you had a health service brought in that allowed you not to live in fear, uh, but you also had a, a change in attitudes. It had begun before the war. It had begun in the austerity of the 1930s, but the war fomented the change that people no longer saw each other as so different between the social classes, partly because they had fought uh, side by side together and also had had to imagine the end of British or at least English society. It could have come to an end in the war. Um, and that, I think, changes what you see as, as solid and what you think is as fixed at, at all time. And that those changes carried on in the 1950s and the 1960s when people at the top of society took smaller increases in their pay than people at the bottom of society. So as we got full employment, as, as living conditions got better, the gaps between ourselves in terms of our wages and salaries dropped and the wealth gap dropped. And so it became easier and easier to mix socially because the actual real gaps, the gaps that really money, gaps in terms of money, um, became much, much less than they had been before the war. Yeah. And I mean, do you lay the blame for what happened later on then, squarely or purely at Thatcher's door? Or is it more complicated than that? It's more complicated. It's not just one person or even one political party that you can hold responsible. I think what you can do is to look at the trajectories in many countries. And the key thing about Britain is that we went a particular way in the 1970s that most other countries in Europe didn't go. Uh, they may have seen small increases in inequality and in the gaps between people rising, but nothing like, like the increase that we saw. And in hindsight, it really was all the way from the late 60s through the 70s that this kind of decision was being made about which way we were going to go. And I think it's fair enough to blame the 1960s Labour governments and, and the fact they didn't put in place a strife into practice as happened in much of mainland Europe, as much as the Conservatives who, who saw this as an opportunity to look after their own or the group that they, they'd gone mm. solidly into in the case of Margaret Thatcher and to saw away allowing the inequality. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. ...to rise. It was a national decision um, or a national failure, depending on how you look at it, right across the political spectrum, compared to those countries in most of Europe or in Scandinavia, which kept the achievements of the 1940s, 50s and 60s largely intact into the 80s and 90s. And so they're much more all in it together now that we have a international crisis hitting us again. Mm. And, the, and the sort of final section of your piece is really, I mean, it's distressing reading, really, when you're examining the entrenchment of really an absolute poverty of, of you know, the idea at that the lowest end that there are plenty of people in Britain now and we know because we see food banks opening, etc., that are not properly fed and whose children are not properly fed. Um, and I suppose what, as a last question, you know, what now? What, what can be done and what isn't being done, more to the point, uh, to rectify this? Well, what's happening now at the bottom of society, I mean, half, half of people are financially insecure, a third living in some kind of, of poverty. Uh, housing conditions are getting absolutely worse. People are getting colder in their homes because they can't heat them. The number of children who are not eating, eating poverty is rising. All of this can only happen in a rich country which has become so disconnected from itself and which the gaps between people have grown so wide that it can be seen as allowable that we have a situation where food banks, uh, where basically soup kitchens 
the 1930s return again. Um, my view is that I cannot see any country in the world, any rich country in the world, that has as big a gap between the rich and the poor, which then manages to solve its problems of poverty. The only countries in which you see poverty reducing, in which you see things getting absolutely better at the bottom, are those countries where the rich are not taking more and more of what there is to go around. So I, I can see no way in which we will get rid of the food banks and the soup kitchens and the people going cold in their homes again in a way that their parents didn't, without curtailing the excesses at the top and without having a situation where our top 1% are taking twice as much as the top 1% in, say, places like Switzerland or the Netherlands, which are actually far more equal than we are. Thank you very much, Danny. That's fascinating. I'm joined by our contributing editor, Laurie Penny, down the line from a conference in Germany. Hello, Laurie. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your feature, which you've written in this week's magazine, about the elections in Iceland, which happened on the 27th of April. Um, first of all, tell me, it was your first time in Iceland, so what was it What was it like to visit as a country? It's, it's a very strange and fascinating place. I really, really like being there. I wish I could have stayed longer, actually, because um, Reykjavik is, is the main town, and it's... Uh, it's, it's so cosmopolitan and yet so small and so far away from everything. You say in the piece, don't you, it's 320,000 people, yes. about the size of Reading. Yeah, that's the whole country, not Reykjavik. Uh, Reykjavik is the size of South End. Um, uh, it's very, very little. And then, so in the elections, I think, you know, there were just hundreds of people standing from this tiny mm -hmm. population. But you, you write in the piece about the idea of um, this kind of fairy tale that we tell ourselves, that Iceland turned away from austerity, it broke all the rules. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and to how much, to what extent is that true? Well, it's, it's not as true as we would like to um, But when you explain this to people, especially when people from Iceland try and explain this to anyone else in the Eurozone, um, people actually get angry. Apparently, um, the Spanish consulate in Reykjavik has apparently been receiving phone calls from Spaniards desperate to emigrate to Iceland, a socialist utopia. And they get really, really upset when they're told that actually it's not as simple as that. You know, that people have problems there as well. And actually, uh, people have massive problems with the government, massive problems with the system of representation. And people's lives aren't great right now. There is still... Uh, there's still there's still poverty. There's still a drop in the quality in the quality of life, and this is still the result of massive financial mismanagement, out of control free market capitalism. And people are still dealing with the effects of that. They're just dealing with it in a slightly different way from many other countries in the world. And you write particularly about the Pirate Party. Now, people kind of might have heard the phrase, but probably I don't think we'll have much of a clue about them. Can you bring them to life for us? What well, the Pirate Party started, uh, they came out of the Pirate Bay, the file sharing site based in Sweden, when that started being attacked. People involved in those file sharing sites started to get together and think, hang on, we need somebody in, in power to represent our interests. And out of that quite, quite niche issue at the time came everything that the pirates are about now, which is direct democracy, freedom of speech, and they're very, they are still a niche issue party. Uh, which is what I found very, very interesting about them, because they don't, they're, they're acting in the same space as other political parties, but they're not, they don't have the same intentions, they, they're, but they're not also the same as a single, a single issue group, rather like the Green Party in the UK, I guess their, uh, their ideas are broadened out a bit beyond what the initial impetus was. They're also all nerds, and they're, <laughs> 
I like that line about being allergic to inaccuracy because yes. they, they love, you know, they love data. They love, um, and actually they seem to be doing a similar thing to some of the initiatives here, like the they work for you and, and those kind of things where you can track what, you know, much more detail, what your MP is doing, what they're saying on yes, your behalf. It's a, uh, there, there are already sites in the UK which mirror things uh, that the Pirate Party is doing. So, uh, yeah, they work for you would be an example. The idea is that we use the internet to make a democratic system that's much more representative, much fairer. And uh, a lot of these ideas are actually very old ideas that have uh, been updated for the, for, for the internet age. But um, whether or not they're going to work is still being tested out. The Pirates assure me that they've got protocols in place so people can't just you know, vote for free ponies for everyone and then we have to do it um, because that would be silly. And uh, let's just flagrantly spoiler the end of your piece because <laughs> you end up at 4am in a downtown Reykjavik bar yes. listening to some pounding techno with the Pirate Party but they they got three members of parliament in, in the end. They got, they got three friends and, and that's the first uh, Pirate Party MPs in a national government so it's, it's quite historic um, <clears throat> but the next day everybody wasn't really that happy, which I was quite impressed with because yes they got in but so had the progressive and the independence party who had the big centre right and right wing parties in Iceland which were responsible for their financial crash in the first place. So obviously everybody on the left um, and on the uh, pirates aren't necessarily of the left but everybody on the left in Iceland has uh, has massive work to do in even bringing the, bringing the country back to where it was before the elections. Well, Laurie, it sounds a little bit like you're in a cross between a kind of busy airport and yes. a squeaky hospital Sorry cafeteria. <laughs> so um, I think we'll probably leave it there. But thank you very much. And I hope you'll be back on the podcast soon. Thanks, Helen. Nice to talk to you. Hi, my name's Philip Morn, and I'm joined by Jonathan Derbyshire to talk about the week's books. Um, Edmund Burke, Jesse Norman, has written um, a biography of Burke, uh, philosopher, politician, prophet. And this week we have a review in the magazine by John Gray, who sort of takes issue with the way that Burke is being manhandled in this book, I think. Yeah, so Jesse Norman, Conservative MP, recently um, readmitted into the Cameroonian uh, fold after being in um, the political equivalent of Siberia for the last couple of years. Um, has written, it's not just a biography of Burke, it's also an attempt to treat Burke as um, a political philosopher whose work um, has contemporary resonances. Mm. Um, John Gray's principal contention in this review is that there's a fundamental contradiction in Burke's work, mm. which Norman doesn't take sufficient account of, and that that contradiction hobbles Norman's attempt to present us with a Burke of the 21st century, if you like. So the tension, as I understand um, as I understand it, is between Burke's critique of what um, has subsequently been called by the conservative political philosopher Michael Oakeshott, political rationalism. In other words, Burke was very critical of the idea, and this is why he was um, so horrified by the French Revolution. He was very critical of the idea that societies could be remade in the image of abstract ideals. So on the one hand, you've got this anti-rationalism in politics that um, is very characteristic of Burke's um, masterpiece, the reflections on his reflections on the French Revolution. Yet, John says, he was also at the same time committed to a kind of providentialism, which saw the progress of liberty as evidence of the of there being a divine author of history at work. And John suggests that that providentialism is in um, 
tension, um, um, irresolvable tension with uh, Burt's critique of political rationalism. And that hobbles, as I've said, uh, Norman's attempt to suggest that we might have more to learn from Burke, who, of course, was writing in the um, mid to late 18th century than we might have thought. Mm. And I, he spends quite a lot of time talking about Thatcher, actually, because I think one of the um, sort of side effects of, uh, of writing this book is that he's sort of written the Thatcherite model out of conservative history. I think that's quite an interesting point to make. Yeah, so he sees Burke as a, as a critic of liberal individualism. Mm. And, of course, um, as Simon Heffer argued in his essay in uh, The New Statesman last week, um, it is in, entirely plausible to see Thatcher not as a conservative, but as a, but as a kind of Gladstonian liberal and um, tribune of uh, liberal individualism. Um, however, there is a connection, Gray suggests, between Thatcher and Burke, is, is that Thatcher, like Burke, saw um, the progress of liberty as fitting into a kind of grand historical narrative. Um, but as John says, unfortunately, the narrative has come to, came to a juddering halt with the uh, um, financial crisis of 2008, which brought the great Thatcherite project of the last 30 years to an end. Precisely. And there's a nice quote I've picked out here where he says that absolute consist, uh, consistency, however desirable in mathematics and logic, is neither available nor desirable in the conduct of human affairs. Yeah. So while, of course, the lady wasn't for turning, and Burke is most famous for having yeah. <laughs> turned on his initial sort of radical um, commitment in yeah. with regards to politics. Um, there's also a review by Sarah Churchwell, um, quite a rigorous review when it comes to, to history. It's um, um, a new novel about Zelda Fitzgerald, a historical novel, which sort of is, is lacking in history as she sees it. Yeah, um, I don't think Sarah would mind me suggesting that she's... Uh, grinding an axe or yeah, two in yeah. this review because as, as um, listeners will know Sarah is about to publish a book entitled Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby and it's published by Little Brown in June um, her, her fundamental complaint it, with this novel which um, as you've said by Therese Ann Fowler which is, as you said um, is based on the life of Zelda and indeed F. Scott Fitzgerald is that um, the author Therese Ann Fowler has not met her obligations to the historical record um, I think the concluding paragraph of Sarah Churchwell's review um, summarises the argument very well. She writes, Writers of historical novels owe a debt to the facts that have inspired their fictions. Fowler wants to capitalise on the facts but feels no obligation to them. And much of the view is taken up with a really um, punishing enumeration of the uh, myriad uh, historical errors mm. that litter the novel. Absolutely. Lovely to read about Zelda Fitzgerald and yeah. amongst all this Gatsby madness at the moment. Um, Norman Lamont has um, reviewed a book about Iran. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a very interesting uh, review that he, uh, he expects the books to be attacked for its almost uh, support of, well, understanding towards the Iranian situation with regard to nuclear um, power. Yeah, so the book in question is A Dangerous Delusion, Why the West is Wrong About Nuclear Iran by the um, right-wing commentator Peter Oborn and David Morrison. Um, and indeed, Norman Lamont, former Conservative um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and also, it ought to be pointed out, Chairman of the British Iranian Chamber of Commerce, ah. <laughs> um, full disclosure. Yeah. <laughs> um, Norman Lamont writes that the, um, he, he expects that the wrath of the neocons is about to descend upon Oborn and Morrison. And that's because Oborn and Morrison, in this um, brief but um, very well-argued book, um, consider the evidence for the claim mm. being made by the Americans and other international powers that Iran's nuclear program 
um, ha has been turned to um, military ends. Um, and Lamont notes, as uh, Oborn and Morrison argue, that the evidence tends um, rather to suggest that Iran is not engaged in developing a nuclear weapon. Um, and he suggests that it's time for the West to start talking to the Iranians, just as they've learned to talk, however distasteful they may, may find the regime to the Chinese. Yeah, no, he, there are a lot, a lot of points made in this that I think get lost in the sort of more hysterical wings of, of the newspapers and the press. Um, he talks about the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency um, and the constant pressure that yeah. they are under, mostly from Western governments, to, to, to kind of persuade Iran to constantly come up with uh, what Lamont writes as various negatives. You, yeah. know, you know, this is actually a, a great deal of pressure and, and something that is no, undoubtedly going to wind up the government's... Well, no, and he, he also points out that it's something that's not... Um, sufficiently acknowledged in the debates on this issue is that um, Iran's nuclear facilities do operate under the supervision of the exactly. IAEA. The biologist Steve Jones has got a new book called The Serpent's Promise, The Bible Retold as Science, uh, which is of course a very provocative title yeah. um, and as our reviewer Nick Spencer from uh, the think tank Theos points mm. out, this is the kind of title that's going to sell a science book nowadays, whether it has uh, bears great relation to the contents of the book yeah. is actually uh, in question. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a fundamental problem with this book is is that it, it takes for granted something that Spencer says we ought not to take for granted, which it takes for granted the claim that the Bible and um, Christianity more generally contains uh, an account of the, the nature of reality and the way the world is that is in some sense a rival to the account of the way the world is offered by natural science. But as, as Nick points out, he writes, the Bible shows little curiosity about subjects we normally place under the rubric of science, such as the origin, age, structure and diversity of the physical world. And Nick Spencer comes close to suggesting that um, the book is almost a kind of cynic cynical marketing ploy, because when Jones forgets about religion and simply attends to um, offering very fluent um, popularising explanations of fundamental scientific principles, having to do, for example, with the origins of the universe, the origins of life, evolution, um, the interaction of nature and nurture, and so on. He shows himself one of our best science popularisers. The problem is that that science popularising has been put in the service of a rather tendentious argument about the nature of religion and the relationship between religion and science. Indeed, and to write about the Bible, you would hope to read a great deal of parts of psychology, myth and so on, and these are going to be missing. So it's, yeah. you know, a matter of great when he's writing about science, not so great when he isn't. Yeah. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Thank you. You are listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and our regular New Statesman staff, of Philip Morn, George Eaton, Raphael Baer and Sophie Elmhurst. This was the last podcast appearance for culture editor Jonathan Derbyshire, and we wish him all the best in his new role at Prospect. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.